Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Miles, recorded in our writer's studio just above the bookshop at Kilometre Zero in Paris. If you enjoy these conversations, there are a few different ways you can support us. First of all, you can leave a rating right now in whatever podcast app you're using. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that people will discover us. It only takes a few seconds and can really help spread the word. You can also buy books, gifts and apparel from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you'll find our popular Year of Reading subscription. 12 books, handpicked by our dedicated booksellers, shipped to you or a loved one, wherever they are in the world. Finally, you can become a friend of Shakespeare and Company by joining the association we set up to get us through a difficult few years. Membership gives you access to exclusive online content, as well as other treats depending on the tier you choose. Find out more at friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com. I'll be back at the end, but until then, sit back and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. These past few years, it has become something of a cliché to declare that satire is dead, and that our vain, buffoonish politicians and the biddable electorate that voted them in are jointly responsible for killing it. Whether that's true or not, whether satire is dead or merely sleeping, if there's one person we might rely on to jolt it back to life, it's Armando Iannucci. That statement may come as no surprise, considering Armando is the creative force behind films like In the Loop and The Death of Stalin, and shows like The Thick of It and Veep, not to mention the series that preserved my personal sanity during the first lockdown, the wonderfully scathing Avenue 5. What may be more of a surprise is the form in which he chooses to tackle the biggest political subject of this, or indeed more or less any year in the past few decades, the pandemic. For his new book, Pandemonium, takes the form of an epic poem, in which the hero, for want of a better word, Orbis Rex, accompanied by his loyal band of merry nepotists, sets out to take on the, quote, wet and withered bat from Wuhan. Pandemonium is riotously funny, naturally, but it is also in parts surprisingly affecting, while in others it roils with righteous anger. There will be a lot of books to come out about the mistakes made and palms greased these last 18 months, but few, I suspect, that take aim and hit their targets as effectively and entertainingly as Pandemonium. Which is why it gives me great pleasure to say that Armando Iannucci joins me today to discuss it. Armando, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Uh, Delighted to be with you. Thank you so much. Where I'd like to begin... Um, is the the form you chose um, for this for this particular um, work the the epic poem and it's only in researching this podcast that I've come across the the idea in fact the genre of the um, of the mock epic or the mock heroic um, and I, I'm I'm just curious to know what was it about this particular event this particular situation that made you think that the epic poem or the mock epic was the, the best format to take it on? Well, I've had to sort of reverse engineer an answer to that because what happened was I, uh, uh, in lockdown, you know, your mind, your thoughts start wandering and you start thinking, what can I do? You're in this frustrating situation where, you know, t- time slows down. On the one hand, it's very nice to be with your family and so on. But on the other hand, you're aware of what you're not doing. And you're also locked in while outside you're aware of this huge tragedy unfolding and it took a little while for me to even think that I wanted to do something about it and and what I actually did was I just started writing for myself I just I've I've always done the odd just for internal and private either amusement or therapy written poetry just to play around with words and and shape and 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 so on but never intending to publish and I found actually this started pouring out. I just started 
the first line and carried on, wrote 10 lines, put it away. Maybe two weeks later, pulled it out, wrote another 10 or 15 lines, put it away. Maybe two months went by and I'd write 50 lines and put it away. And I think just when it was finished, I, 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 I tried to, I asked myself that question. Why have I done it this way? Why have I chosen the epic? And I think it's because, like you said at the start, a lot of people are saying, you know, things are so crazy now that it's impossible to reduce them to a joke. Um, and what I wanted to do with this was not reduce it, actually, not compare it to something small, but actually compare it to something. It's such an epic event that we're going through. Why don't we see how these public figures who are by definition almost like deciding who lives and who dies? Why don't we compare them to the highest, to gods and see how they stand up? I think that's what it was. I think I wanted to do something that had a grand, slightly operatic scale to it, really. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was reading about the mock epic, one thing that it said that in this sort of, the, it's the tradition of that is that um, it's normally applying the elevated heroic style to a trivial subject. And now, of course, the pandemic is not by any means a trivial subject, but it put me in mind of, I think it's what Keir Starmer said in his conference speech about Boris Johnson being a trivial man. So it's not exactly... It's not a trivial subject, but in a sense, it's trivial subjects. That's right. And I wanted to be very clear, rather like in the death of Stalin, you know, there's comedy going on inside the Kremlin. But what the consequence of the decisions made by the people inside, the tragic consequences outside, we wanted to show absolutely without any form of humour. And I also felt in writing this, that contrast between publicly what was happening with the pandemic, well, privately there were, you know, a million tragedies going on, household tragedies and household traumas. I wanted to straddle that line as well. So, so like you said in your introduction, there are moments I hope are very funny, but other moments where I don't mean to be funny at all. I want to be quite open and, and raw and just describe the consequences for each individual family unit or household or person. You know, the private narrative that they have next to the public narrative that we all kind of observed. So this is the early days of the virus. And the first of Orbis's um, addresses to the nation. And in silence too, all grief was sung. In distant whispers, alone or with a few, a coffin, the one unmasked cry of anger at the loss, stilled by those distant farewells, kisses on screens and goodbyes by broadband, which pulse across the fields and into the sorrowful moment till all is mute. But rush, there came a noise, whose firm sense and hollering uplifted hearts in every house. Folks, said Orbis Rex, we face an enemy unwelcome, whom we shall fight with every sinew we can spare. For let our watchword be hurrah and no more. Orbis stood in a mighty chamber, newly raised, reflecting all his glory, rebounding off teak panelling and glorious carpets. Fantastically, he cried, we shall put on our armour, or, if none available, improvise with sheets and cladding 
or cloth barriers and plastic bags or paper, if need be, or pulp. The point is, we are ready. Fantastic. You mentioned um, the death of Stalin, um, and it, it made me think that, um, of course, over the last few years, um, it's almost become a cliche to, to say to you, oh, with, what with Brexit or things like that, we'd love to see what the thick of it would have done with that. And you've always kind of, when I've seen you in interviews, well, always I've kind always of said no, Because the yeah. thick of it, and indeed, we never actually took topical issues and did a, right. a story around them. You know, we, 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 we exist in a, in a parallel world where similar kinds of issues would arise, but we'd invent them ourselves. Occasionally, we would come up with stuff that would then happen. Um, you mentioned Avenue 5. We're actually recording an, uh, an episode in which the next generation of the owners of Facebook and Google and, and, and Apple all sit down and, and the head of Facebook announces that they're changing their name. And we wrote this about a year ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, what they actually say is, <clears throat> we're changing our name to Face because the word book puts people off. Um, but it's a major change for Facebook, <laughs> you know, and we, we do these things. We speculate rather than try and um, respond to what's just happened. Yeah. I kind of enjoy more trying to imagine what might happen next, really, yeah. which is why I've never felt really that I've wanted to do a thick of it or a veep or a, a whatever about something that has happened, even in the loop, which was about a war we never de we never specified which country was being invaded uh and who was invading it other than that Britain and America were kind of getting together to to plan it really um because I'm kind of more interested you know we've got the public stuff we've got the factual accounts of what's happened I'm kind of more interested in knowing you know what do the individuals involved what do they go through you know emotionally and rationally. <laughs> what's going on inside them that they then behave like that or they come to that decision. Mm. And I guess in a sense, um, some of the, 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 the politicians that we've, we've had over um, the past few years, I think, obviously, depending, I guess, on your political persuasion or the kind of person you are, but it's, it's very difficult sometimes to project oneself, for example, into the head of Boris Johnson or into the head of uh, Donald Trump, for example. And I'm curious about, so your, your Orbis Rex, so this, um, this hero, uh, Orbis Rex, of course, meaning world king, which Boris Johnson gave as his ambition when he was four years old or something like that. Like, how did the kind of the creation of this character, did it, did, do you feel did it allowed you to understand Boris Johnson a little more by sort of thinking yourself inside his head? Well, slightly. I think, you know, especially in the early days of the pandemic, I think it would be fair to say we all had some sympathy with those in charge because no one had faced anything like this before. A lot of them were just new to the job. How would we have coped in similar circumstances? You know, even the scientists were trying to get a handle on it and trying to work out what was the best. Remember all the conflicting advice? At one point, the World Health Organization was saying, no, don't wear masks. No, you know, actually we should. You know, that's not their fault. It's just these things take time to kind of work out. We, science is science is not an exact science. Science is continually um, adding to what's already known and then discarding on the basis of new information um, uh, conclusions that now don't, 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 don't operate. Um, 
So we were all in that sense. I think for me, the the, the anger and the you know the, the wanting to try and get behind the minds of those involved came really in that second wave. You know, when in the UK, everyone went crazy over the summer and as if it was all over, and then it it wasn't all over. And we knew it wasn't all over. We were behaving as if it was. Well, inside, we knew it wasn't. And then come the Christmas or the winter again, we go into an even worse situation. Um, And and it was by then when when we all beginning to think, hang on, did they not... (laughs) Did they not kind of learn their lesson from the first time around? You know, our leader ended up in hospital quite seriously ill and yet strangely had this optimistic belief that it would all just go away if we only just got on with our lives, really. That seems sort of connected to the way um, the story is told. And I think there's a lot of that going on on in this poem. <clears throat> I mean, someone like Boris Johnson is elected because of his optimism. He has a very positive, jolly, yo, it'll be fine, we'll all be fine. You know, but that's an emotion, you know, and, and, and we actually, you know, you can't run a country by emotion alone. You know, <laughs> decisions have to be made and facts need to be faced. Remember Donald Trump just saying, you know, it'll all disappear. Remember in the early days of panic, magically, it'll go away. Um, and that's, I think that's a precarious situation we're now in, that the kind of political class, for want of a better word, now more and more are made up of people who are there not through beliefs or principles or an ideology, um, but through a vague emotional impulse that they want to convey. So they are like performers now. Just um, just, uh, just on a little aside about Orbis Rex, because when, when I read that, it felt to me as a sort of a perfect kind of moment of artistic serendipity when this sort of, when World King becomes Orbis Rex, which Orbis, of course, becomes Boris. Yeah, sort of an anagram. It's sort of, I, I can only imagine the, the, there must have been a moment of joy when you <laughs> stumbled upon that. Uh, <clears throat> or more worryingly, it's almost as if it was destined to happen that a leader called <laughs> Boris would call himself World King. Yes, no, I know. I, I, I found these things and, 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 I, and I, I didn't, as I was writing, as I started the poem, I didn't have that connection in mind but I knew I wanted to gravitate towards that figure and it was only looking at the words Boris and seeing Orbis uh, and knowing that he grew up saying he wanted to be a world king. I mean it's interesting from a point of view of sort of um, French literature uh, the thing it also evokes in it sort of echoes in some way is uh, Ubu Roi the Alfred Jerry character who of course was referenced a lot particularly during Trump's presidency as well as this kind of infantile tantrum throwing uh, leader. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, to go back to your point about how do you see inside the minds of these, I kind of feel with the, the, the type of leader we have now, we don't need to see inside their mind because it's all projected outwards. It's all, they emote publicly. Things they should be saying in, you know, in, <laughs> in, in, in behind closed walls, they just now say out loud. Uh, and, and, and the frightening thing about Donald Trump is he showed everyone that you can get away with it, that actually the world won't... Well, I was going to say the world won't cave in. It will. It will. Um, but, but but he personally won't um, be penalised for it. You know, he is... I called Avenue 5 Avenue 5 because it was Trump who said, before he got elected, I could shoot a man in the face in Fifth Avenue and still be, get elected, you know. And um, that's the situation we're in now, where words mean... 
whatever they want them to mean. And rules can be changed if they're disagreeable. And events can be declared not to have happened. Mm-hmm. And that, that 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 idea of sort of of, of truth and fact, um, of course, is something which is evoked early on. I think in the very introduction to to Pandemonium, there's the line, "And all is truth, for truth can mutate." Um, and it seemed a very sort of interesting and a very pertinent connection to make between the sort of the way in which a virus kind of travels over the world and the way that information and truth. Of course, we use the word viral and virality when we talk about about news. absolutely. And and the two have kind of come together. So untruths about the virus have been spread virally. So there are people who genuinely still think it's a hoax, that it does exist. I don't know what the situation at the moment in France is, but in the UK, we've had people picketing outside schools, protesting that schools are handing out vaccines. We've had people turning up at hospitals, issuing writs, declaring that doctors and nurses are intentionally killing people it's that thing where you know truth no longer seems to exist as an objective thing and is again it's just become an emotional you know you believe what it is you want to believe that's what happened going way back to tony blair and his invasion of iraq with george bush he justified it a few years later at his party conference saying i only know what i believe and that's you know, that is the opposite of how you, you, modern thinking, modern thought has, has progressed for the last 2,000 years because you sort of, you, you, you try and establish the facts and then on the basis of facts, you can form an opinion. <laughs> but you don't go in with the opinion first and then just choose the facts to fit the opinion. And that's another reason I think that the, the epic poem is a really interesting form for this um for this subject in a way, because one thing that you, you engage with in there is how the, the, the events are going to be represented and how they're going to be viewed historically. Yes, and I think also um, poetry generally it, it is about words not being imprecise, but, but, but being able to say two or th- have two or three meanings at once. It's all about, um, because it's, because each word is significant and how it flows rhythmically and, and, and where it's placed, it's suggestive. You know, there's, it's, it's both, it has its sort of hard meaning, but also there are a hundred soft meanings around it, you know. And, and I kind of wanted not to do a kind of account of how Boris Johnson said this and then this happened. I wanted to set it in a world where it was more mythic and therefore... It, it, it is about general behaviour as well as specific behaviour. Uh, and also, you know, I spent, at, uh, as a student, I, I tried to write a PhD on Paradise Lost, which is, uh, you know, all about good and evil. And, you know, Satan is this great figure. And which gives us the, the epigraph to the book as well. Um, and I, I don't know Paradise Lost well enough to, to know the context of where this comes from. But the line is, um, this horror will grow mild, this darkness light. Um, and it struck me, Yes, which sounds fine, but that's actually Satan saying to his people in hell, we can, we can, we can cope with this, we can, we can make this our own. <laughs> he says we can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven, you know. <laughs> okay, that's true, because it struck me that there was kind of a double meaning there, almost like things, things will wane, things will get better, or our tolerance for, in the case of 
po- politics, corruption and things like that will will grow and it will become normalized in a way. It's funny. I mean, it's people who just use the right words now seem to get the support. So, as I said, Boris uses optimism and positivity. Again, that framing of history, I think, is um, I mean, you just have to look at the way in Britain that we look at the Second World War, for example, that sort of branding of a, of of historical defeats sometimes as victory. So whether it be, I don't know, something like the charge of the light brigade or the Dunkirk evacuations. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's so heroic. fascinating. Yeah, to see how the stories then become uh, twisted. And, and in, in a way, you kind of do this in advance with um, with this poem, sort of taking uh, a lot of the failures of the British government and sort of recasting them, at least in the eyes of your protagonist. As well, it, it ends with Boris doing this, or Orbis, doing this speech to the nation in which he's basically saying, you know, we are our own storytellers. So if we tell each other a happy story, then then this will change how we feel about what's happening around us and, and it will be a sort of a victory. And it's the old, you know, it's, it goes right back to, you know, if you look at the speeches in the Iliad and so on, it's all that. It's just, it's words that are there to rouse emotions and so on. But if people get carried away with words, they find they can actually trans- change the meaning, change the argument. So it's the reverse of what it, it one, once meant, you know. You um, earlier on when you were talking about thinking yourself inside the the head and trying to understand things, you used the word um, anger, um, and it was something that that struck me while while reading this because I, I kind of had the sense that I mean it's very generally speaking that a kind of a rule of thumb of satire is that kind of if it's kind of laser focused and not particularly overtly emotional, it kind of may hit its target better, and yet there are times I think when. Um, and I think, for example, in your previous work of uh, like James Gandolfini's character towards the end of In the Loop, or I guess kind of ironically, Malcolm Tucker's kind of final speech to the Golding Committee, um, that sort of where you feel the anger of the the writers kind of bubbling to the surface. And so in Pandemonium, there's, there's the section where it struck me and really therefore became something very powerful was around young Matt and the circle of friends. And so this is, and, and I'm, just, I'm just curious about the way you sort of, you balance that in your writing about kind of keeping your emotions and your anger in check to better hit your target and knowing when to, to let it roil. I don't want to write polemic. You know, if I, if I want to do that, I'll write as myself in an argumentative column or an article or an essay or something. Um, you know, when I'm working through other characters, I don't want them to be telling you what to think. You know, I just want to be, for me, I, I want to show if an argument has been falsified or if a logic has been misused or misapplied. I think for a lot of us in the UK, there was general astonishment that in the early days of the pandemic, huge multi-billion contracts were being given to various companies who had no experience in making masks and, and hygiene equipment. Um the argument used at the time was, well, it's a crisis. We haven't got time to do the usual. But it was all going to friends of the ministers involved, the <clears throat> the brother-in-law, the wife of the minister, or the, you know, they were appointing people in very high-profile jobs who were their friends and associates and so on. Uh, and, and, and it's only as the months have gone by that we realised the vast amount of just misuse of billions, billions of public money and those 
to companies who, in the end, pocketed the money but didn't supply equipment that was up to standard. Um, and again, at the time, people were thinking, well, how would I have coped under those circumstances? I would have probably made a few mistakes as well. But if, I think what was so shocking was just how endemic it was, you know, how automatic it was um, that it kind of, it, it, I think it unveiled to a lot of people a level of dysfunction in, in how government contracts work, really, that we'd all suspected, but we'd never seen played out in real time. So that, for me, I also got angry reading a very good account of the pandemic called um, State of Failure by the Sunday Times Insight team. And, and you know, a very detailed account how in the early days paramedics were told not to bring the elderly or people who might not be top of the priority list into hospital, which in the end was people with learning difficulties, people disabled, uh, the elderly... Uh, or maybe one or two social backgrounds, and so it was. There was a kind of uh, emergency eugenics going on there that left a lot of people uneasy. Uh, and the truth was, there there were still beds empty at the time in hospitals, and we were building Nightingale hospitals all around to take overflow. But a lot of doctors and uh, higher up in in the organisation putting do not resuscitate notices to people who hadn't agreed those things you know so that's I think that will take a little while for us to really get to the truth of what went on there but that made me kind of viscerally I mean I was I was I felt quite ill about it just when I was reading it I was I just I got quite emotional about it and and I think that's one of the points last year when I took the poem out and thought I want to carry this on really Uh uh-huh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what it gives rise to is, and I mean, it's in the most complimentary way, some of the most repulsive writing <laughs> that, that I've ever come across. I mean, the, the descriptions of the kind of the many-limbed beasts of friends. Yeah, yes, is... the circle of, so Matt Hancock, uh, health minister, his circle of friends is this, I went back to like Dante's Inferno, but also Hieronymus Bosch paintings of like hell and just people having, just for punishment, musical instruments shoved up their fundament and and just writhing bodies and stuff. Um, so the circle of friends are the, the all Matt's friends, but they're, they're a knotted circle. They all know each other and, and they're all over each other. And, and so it just becomes a big mountain of limbs and, and orifices all kind of <laughs> using each other in a kind of slightly disgusting way. Um, <laughs> and he forms a, a creature out of parts of these friends that he rides on and it's bits of limbs and bits of flanks of his of his associates and so on yeah quite a, as i said quite a like quite, quite a sort of stomach churning but um appropriately so it seemed to capture that sort of that 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 anger that um i turned about i talked about earlier um one character who i mean had to make an appearance but i can imagine that for a satirist it's sort of or particular or even like writing writing a poem like this it must have been difficult because i can only imagine that he revels in his kind of role as a villain, in a sense, is, um, is Dominic Cummings. Um, was there a kind of uh, a little bit of a sort of hesitation on your part of like of not wanting to? I kind of waited yeah. to find out what would be the right role for him to play. Mm-hmm. And, and again, he was famous for his ride to Bernard Castle to test his eyesight. And, mm-hmm. and so on. that became his kind of 
that fixed him. In. But I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that as an event within the mm-hmm. poem because it was so familiar anyway. I'm not sure. But it was more when he turned up several months later, having left government, to answer questions to a yeah. committee. And the level of kind of self-flagellation he was going through, saying, yeah, we made lots of mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a scandal that I was in such a powerful position. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It was a sort of strange, you know, it was an uber mea culpa. It was just kind of, just, it was a, you know, confession gold, um, uh, platinum. Um, and I thought that's interesting. The kind of, the bewailing, the moaning. I mean, he's always dissatisfied anyway. Mm-hmm. He thinks everyone's an idiot. So that sense of dissatisfied, dissatisfied with everyone around him, dissatisfied even with himself, you know. So I portrayed him as as this blind seer in the underworld, which is a which is a convention anyway in mm-hmm. heroic verse. You know, the, you know Vir- Virgil who takes Dante round Paradise Lost and... Um, you know, the, and the blind prophet and so on. So in the poem, Orbis shakes hands with the virus to show that they're all friends and immediately sinks into a slumber in a kind of nether world where he meets, he thinks it's the devil. He thinks it's old Nick. He says, not old Nick, it's Dominic, who is condemned for eternity to test his eyesight by being pulled in a cart <laughs> round a pillar by lots of creatures that have passed on the plague, like beetles and rats and so on. But Dominic is the one who then tries to open Orbis's inner sight to what is going to happen all around the country. You know, what's going on in every household and, and the private tragedies that are going on around him. And that was something I was kind of knew I had to write and was kept putting off putting because I wanted to try and, you know, do my best with it. And, and it. It, it has no jokes, <laughs> not any I can think of, but it's, it's, I, I wanted to try and just briefly give a sense of what was actually happening outside, outside Whitehall, outside, across the country and indeed across the world. Yeah, and it's, I think that's a really affecting bit of the poem, actually. I mean, I, I noted down particularly the line, um, I see children bewildered in their classroom preparing for a life they know will be different from what is written down. And it just seems such an under-acknowledged um, effect of this this pandemic, of the, the effect it had on people, uh, I guess, younger than what, like, particularly younger than maybe 25. Like, I mean, a of lot people... of the, one of the, you know, upswings, <laughs> upsides of, of this is is we now do a lot of what we're doing now, speaking on Zoom. So I was able to, I was at home, but in fact, I was able to uh, say yes to invitations I normally wouldn't have time to do. Like, you know, I gave a talk to a film school in Florence. Normally that would be, well, you've got to go out there and yeah, it'd be lovely, but then I've got to get back. You know, I I just, when when do I fit that in? So, so there's all that, but and, and but also speaking to colleges and university students and 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 so on, and a lot of them, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know why I kept thinking that I'd see a lot of people in a room, but of course I didn't. I saw lots of people in their bedrooms and their living rooms, all across the country. Really, that sense of separateness, and and I just, I feel deeply, and uh, one of my children, one of my children were going through it anyway. He, his year at college was all entirely on zoom you know and it's so you know that's the point college is the time where university is the time 
when you go out, you get away from home, you meet lots of people, you try out new, you know, all sorts of new experiences and meet people from different backgrounds. And, you know, you just expand in terms of the range of your uh, um, uh, uh, connections and friendships and so on. And for that to be denied to a lot of, to a whole generation, I think is, is heart-wrenching. Um, the royalties and the profits from the poem will go to Mental Health UK because I particularly think that there is this long-running uh, epidemic as well, isn't there? The consequences of what's happened, which for especially for the younger generation, I think will will take a lot of time to to work out and to process. And I get the sense will probably manifest themselves in quite unpredictable ways as well. Unpredictable ways, and now with this the climate thing now in the headlines, mm. you know, I fully expect that generation to be quite angry with my mm. generation, really. Yeah, for yeah. the situation we've put them in, really, yeah. and quite rightly so. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> Um, you get away with it. You don't look like my generation. <laughs> but Boris is my generation almost exactly. You know, it's... Uh, uh, and I, I do think, you know, we were lucky. We we grew up thinking, this is great. Uh, everything's everything's all laid out for us, you know. And we didn't really do much to think beyond that, really. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time, but... Um... One thing, and I guess it's a kind of, um, it's an incredibly broad question, and I guess it's kind of the eternal question about satire, but I always have the feeling of this kind of, this double feeling when I'm encountering a piece of satire, which is it's both completely essential to our culture, and yet also in some way futile, like it doesn't, uh, do you, is that something that you wrestle with in your work? Like, do you expect or do you hope that the work that you produce will have a kind of a material effect on the political process. I always think, I think you're on a hiding to nothing, thinking if anything you write comically is going to change people's opinions. I don't think it's that at all, really. And I think you'd go crazy if you expect that. I think it's more... Look, we got through this pandemic by doing what? By watching lots of Netflix and reading lots of books and magazines and, you know, uh, uh, listening to music and, you know, looking at art and, and you know, the arts do something. You, you, saw the, you saw how essential they were, but essential in little unmeasurable ways to every individual, really, uh, because they either make sense of what you're going on or they divert you from what's going on or they try and give you a slightly different interpretation of what's happening because what has been happening has been so confusing and so full on that you know it will take us a, a while to, to to work it out for ourselves and individually so i hope this in a very very small way plays that kind of part with someone somewhere you know that i think that's the best you can hope for something that you yeah almost sort of contributing to a kind of a cumulative effect that may it's a cumulative thing and the connection that it makes with someone is one that you will be completely unaware of mm -hmm. you know unless they write to you or whatever it, but that's fine because i remember growing up reading something thinking oh god this is great or listening to some comedy for the first time thinking that's amazing you know and that's what uh, uh encouraged me to 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 keep following that so if if it if it, you know, if for someone it makes sense of what's been happening or it's a comfort to what's been happening or whatever, 
then that's great. But I won't know about mm-hmm. it. But uh, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> well, I, well, I can tell you at least for one person that it uh, it acted as a comfort and it helped make me make some sense of um, of the previous years. Or at least contributed again to a cumulative effect to my attempt to to process what's been going on. Excellent. Oh, well, that's good. Then. And you've taught me, which is great. There you go. <laughs> well, look, that is all we've got time for. Um, of course, Pandemonium is available from Shakespeare and Company, uh, the bricks and mortar store, from our online store, or, of course, your uh, neighbourhood local independent, where, wherever that may be. Uh, Armando Yonichi, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Since you've made it this far, I hope that means you've enjoyed what you've heard and will consider rating us in whatever app you're using. The theme music is Mr Ginger by the incredible jazz musician Alex Fryman, taken from his album Play It Gentle. I'll be back next week. Until then, take care, happy reading and thanks again for listening.